Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Sachin Jain is president and CEO of Scan Group and Health Plan, where he is charged with leading the organization's growth, diversification, and emerging efforts to reduce healthcare disparities. Previously, Dr. Jain was president and CEO of Care More and Aspire Health, an innovative care delivery system with over $1.6 billion in revenue serving 200,000 Medicare and Medicaid patients in 32 states. He pioneered the first clinical program in the world focused on social isolation. Dr. Jane is also an adjunct professor of medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine and a contributor at Forbes. He is also co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Delivery Science and Innovation. For his tremendous achievements, Dr. Jane is regularly recognized as a top 50 most influential clinical leader and 100 most influential people in U.S. healthcare by modern healthcare. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jane, for speaking with us today. We appreciate the opportunity to learn more about your journey and drive as a healthcare visionary and physician executive. Could you tell us more about your personal mission in healthcare and how you've navigated professional opportunities to achieve this mission? Yeah, I, you know, my kind of mode of measuring myself is really am I able to have real meaningful impact on patients? And so my career decisions have always been made through the lens of where can I have the biggest impact? Where can I make the biggest change on behalf of frail and vulnerable populations? And you know, my definition of frail and vulnerable includes you know, people who have poor access to healthcare, but it also includes people who have no access to healthcare. And you know, until the ACA was passed, there were a very, very large number of Americans who had almost no access to regular healthcare. And so my focus throughout my career, uh, since I was an undergraduate, was thinking about you know, what are the ways that we can make great healthcare more equitably distributed. Now, we're a country where many are living with plenty and far too many are living with nothing. And I think we have to ask ourselves hard questions about how do we bridge that gap? Is this the kind of society that we actually want to live in? And you know, start to think about some of the trade-offs that we need to make to actually lower the cost of healthcare and more broadly distribute it. That's a bit of how I think about things. You know, I spend time in government, I spend time in the pharmaceutical industry, I spend time uh, at the Anthem subsidiary, Caremore, uh, as well as Aspire, um, and then now leading Scan Group and Health Plan. And at each phase, I made the decision to go where I thought I could make the biggest difference, where my skill set could align with what the organization needs. Where do you think medical education sort of plays in this landscape of reflecting teachings and social determinants of health or healthcare management and equity? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge that we face from an academic medicine perspective is that we've unfortunately created a generation of people who want to change healthcare who believe that writing an article in the New England Journal of Medicine or JAMA is the same thing as actually changing healthcare. And I can tell you, having written some articles that have appeared in both of those publications, that it's a wonderful feeling to see your name in those in print and see them see it in those publications. But at the end of the day, you know, the publication itself doesn't actually change anything. And the work of changing healthcare is actually a far more complex task. 
And so I think that the role for medical schools is to build a more realistic model for how change happens in healthcare that incorporates both the academic medical center lens, but also the community medicine lens, as well as kind of the national perspective and not just the regional perspective for the geography in which you're learning. And the reality is, is that, you know, we all think about the world through the lens of where we are, as opposed to asking this question, is my ecosystem representative of the broader ecosystem and, you know, the kind of change that needs to happen? And I, you know, my time in government was widely illuminating on that dimension because you meet people from all over the country who have very different set of issues. Rural physicians who are working at critical access hospitals with eight beds don't have the same problems as, you know, people who are practicing at New York Presbyterian Hospital, and there's a thousand beds over two different campuses. And what happens is, is that when we start to solve these bigger problems, we view it through the lens of our experiences and our institutions, as opposed to taking that broader view. And that's where I think we create a lot of skew and distortion in our health policymaking. Is there anything you wish that you would have known in the early stages of your career? I wish I knew how challenging actually you know, driving institutional change really is. I think you know when you're um, between the ages of you know 22 and 27, you're, you're a medical student, you actually have this kind of simplistic view that you know everyone wants things to be better, and all that we need is just more effort to make things better. And the reality is is that we have a healthcare system that's perfectly designed to achieve the results that it achieves, um, and lots of stakeholders make a lot of money with the system that we have today. And a lot of changing healthcare is disrupting the you know, value creation opportunities for people along that value chain. And so you, know, you take something like a diabetic wound. Well, the real solution to a diabetic wound is to never have the diabetic wound, to better manage the patient's diabetes. But think about everyone who profits when a patient has a diabetic wound, the hospital that does that hosts you for the debridement, the surgeon, the podiatrist, the wound care nurse, the companies that sell bandages and durable medical equipment, the wheelchair companies, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And so we have an ecosystem that is built to produce and create value for everyone except the patient. And what we have to be thinking about is how do we shrink the top line of healthcare organizations? Meaning, if you really want to take on costs, you actually have to reduce costs. And what I will say is frustrating is when I sit in forums with academic medical center leaders, they always talk about how under-reimbursed Medicare and Medicaid care is in their institutions. You hear that all the time. And you wonder, why are they so tone deaf? You know, We're four years away from the bankruptcy of the Medicare trust fund. So the question then becomes, how do we get people focused on actually lowering costs? by obviating the needs for services in the first place. And I think what we've done is we've created a lot of constructs that make us feel better about ourselves. No, we don't have good health outcomes because of the social determinants of health. And so it kind of almost gives us a pass. It almost gives us an, an excuse that we, aren't, we can't think about these you know, new models to disrupt care for patients because we, only, we don't control the whole patient care experience outside the walls of the healthcare institution. I think that's absolutely true. But I think we're all kidding ourselves when we don't actually ask what could we be doing better and drive our, our institutions to be asking the more sophisticated, more fundamental questions about what actually needs to happen to make care better. 
who do you think should kind of lead the forefront of change in that respect in being able to think about the upstream uh, situation regarding uh, patient care or in, and optimization of their care and these alignment uh, of incentives? Is it the government? Is it the CEO? What kind of person do you envision to be the curator of this movement? Well, let me ask you a question. If you, if you told your mother, you know, I'm really interested in improving the social determinants of health, um, what would she say? What do you mean by that? Yeah. And so I think we've created this like language that has made it very complicated to talk about really simple things. Social determinants of health is poverty. It's racism. It's the intended, you know, intended and unintended effects of social injustice. And we've gotten so we've fetishized our vocabulary around this topic and we've created conferences and we've written, we've started journals and we've published lots of articles about the social determinants of health, which allows us to obscure the simple fact that we have a lot of societal injustice in our country where resources are unevenly distributed, where urban planning is set up to fail for people who need it the most. And so I think we have to, you know, ask these bigger questions at a much broader level in the healthcare industry and be thinking about as a society, what kind of society do we want to foster and engender and live in? And how does that, how does, how do our social policies interface with our health policies? How would you describe an effective leader? And what would constitute an effective leader, particularly in healthcare, given our conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think an effective leader is one who's willing and able to make unpopular choices. I think, you know, one of my biggest, one of the biggest challenges in our healthcare industry is how focused we are on pilots and how focused we are on consensus and buy-in. So, you know, we don't make decisions in healthcare organizations unless everyone is bought in. And if we go back to the idea that you know, to really create change, some people will be better off and others will be worse off. You actually arrive at a state where, you know, the quest for buy-in is a quest for, you know, static equilibrium. Nothing changes because there's many people along the value chain who actually don't want anything to change. And so, you know, we, you have to be willing to bet your job. You have to be willing to say unpopular things and you have to do it with kindness. I mean, I think people tend to think that, you know, when I say things like this, that you know, I'm suggesting that you adopt a, a political or a leadership style that's abrasive. I, I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is, is we have to speak truth to power. We have to speak clearly and plainly. We have to acknowledge trade-offs. We have to acknowledge mistakes. We have to acknowledge when everyone's not bought in, but we have to move forward anyways. And I think, again, we have a nation of healthcare administrators, not a nation of healthcare leaders. And that, fra- that kind of framing is a really important one. Administrators are people who lead groups of people through organized process and structure. Leaders are people who define a vision and lead people to that vision. And I think we have too many administrators and not enough leaders in our industry. Regarding your role at Scan Health, there is such a large and diverse community of healthcare workers within the organization. How do you enforce that sense of a central vision and ensure a sense of community and camaraderie within Scan Health Plan? Well, I think it's been hard in the middle of the pandemic. I joined. July of 2020, I think it's been very hard to set, you know, kind of create that sense of community. But I think one of your jobs as a leader is to communicate, communicate, communicate. And you build trust by being transparent. You build trust by sharing 
you know, your good news and sharing your bad news, acknowledging mistakes when they happen and acknowledging successes when they happen. I think you give, you stay generous to others and give credit to others, you know, uh, where you might ordinarily kind of absorb it yourself. These are some of the things you just have to do to create a culture in which people feel like they're, you know, able and willing to do their best work. How do you maintain uh, adaptability within these organizations and perhaps disrupting the status quo, especially as a new leader coming on during a pandemic? I think you have to get really into the weeds and really into the details. And you have to show people what you care about and show people what you mean. And you've got to, you know, communicate both in group settings as well as individual settings and make sure you let people know you see them. You see them, you acknowledge their issues, you acknowledge their challenges. Um, and you are realistic about how you are going to address them and solve them. So I think there's you know, tremendous opportunities for us to create culture and community, even without the benefit of being together in the same place. Obviously, the lack of water cooler conversations is is a, is a big loss, right? Um, there's too many situations where we would we would far prefer to be you know, with each other, sharing with each other. What would you say is the biggest mistake that many executives make uh, in managing teams and that you would advise us to avoid? Yeah, I mean, I would say staying humble. I think we all have these moments where we think we know more than we do um, and we deal with kind of ambiguity by instead of remaining comfortable with that ambiguity, we, we get dug in in our perspective. And I would say it's a mistake we've all made and it's something I would encourage you all to try to avoid. How would you advise our listeners to follow suit of, of what you've done in your journey and become leaders in healthcare, whether in an administrative role, C-suite role, or even as a company founder? I would say don't try to copy anyone and try to do you. I think you know, one of the biggest mistakes people make is they, they look at someone's bio, they look at my bio, and they say, well, in order to get to the here, you've got to do this, 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 and this, and this. And the real story behind anyone, how anyone gets where they're where they are, is far more interesting than their bio might suggest. And so, kind of recognizing that there's a lot of randomness to a lot of these things. You know, I happen to have a friend named Marshall Voda, who's an investor in Providence, who happened to know the leadership team at Caremore, and when they were looking for a new CEO, just you know remembered me and called me, um, and that's kind of how it happened. It wasn't because they were looking for the best person. Um, there were probably a lot of people who would have done a better job than me, but they just happened to connect with me and we hit it off and we we ended up, you know, having a tremendous run there. So I think it's it's about realizing that life is far more random and less planned than any of us think it is at the outset. I think you get socialized in medicine to believe that everything happens in a stepwise way. And even your mentors will tell you that it happens in a stepwise way. First, you have to do this, and then you have to do that. And you know, linearity is for lines, not for people. Um, and so, I think we have to kind of think about how do you embrace the linearity that we all face in our lives. Via is very invested in women's uh, healthcare entrepreneurship and leadership, and unfortunately. There's been a lot of literature that has uncovered the issue of healthcare, uh, not having a woman in healthcare problem, but a woman in healthcare leadership problem. 
And uh, while we've seen some strides to parity, we still have a long way to go. And referring to one of your recent tweets, uh, you state that diversity, equity, and inclusion isn't a checkbox in 2021. It is a business imperative. We'd love to hear more about how you navigate the discussion of diversity and inclusion at Scan Health, whether it be women or the underrepresented in particular. Yeah. I would say we have two major problems from a diversity perspective. I think that our patient population is not adequately diverse. So we have to be better at outreaching and enroll, outreaching to and enrolling a diverse group of members and, and the way and keeping them and serving them in a distinctive way. I think we also have, you know, sort of a second set of issues. Um, around trust with our African-American employees. Um, when you look at trust scores, there's huge gaps there. And then the third thing is quality scores, meaning um, you know, when you look at our medication adherence rates, they're very high across all populations, but there's a clear difference between our African-American and Latino patients and our Caucasian patients. The reason I'm being as direct about this as I am is that one of my fundamental leadership maxims is that you can't solve a problem unless you name a problem. And I think, you know, it's very easy to kind of talk about things in these obtuse terms, but, you know, actually naming the problem and then kind of building the solution is going to get us to a very different place. And I think that's what we're driving towards. Another question we had was the role of men in allowing for adequate diversity and mentorship and career development of young women as, you know, men often preside in top influential positions uh, within healthcare. We did have the opportunity to interview one of uh, your men- mentees, uh, Pooja Chandra Shekhar, uh, yeah. who is the founder of the COVID Health she's, Literacy she's Project. Awesome. Tell so, us about your approach to mentorship, whether uh, generally or with Pooja, and how you feel about the role of men and male allies in addressing this leaky pipeline of, of women as leaders in healthcare. I think it's about seeing potential and maximizing the potential. And it's about personality fit as much as it is about gender fit. I mean, Pooja very quickly became someone I really care a lot about. Um, she's sort of a, a little sister type for me. I've never had a little sister. And so, you know, honestly, I just love working with her. There's not a thing that I try to work on with her that she doesn't do an outstanding job of. Sometimes I think she's a little spread too thin because she does everything. But the reality is, is she does an amazing job with everything that she does. And, you know, again, I think the teacher-student relationship, the mentor-mentee relationship is a very personal one. And it's built on a foundation of mutual trust and caring and concern and sponsorship and looking out for the person and saying, hey, you should apply for the Soros Fellowship. You should, you know, submit this paper to this publication. You should, you know, become the editor of this journal, which are all kind of experiences that I've I've had with Puja. Another one of my mentees is Kim Kaimong, uh, who's a resident now at the Brigham Women's Hospital. I've known Ken since she was a first year medical student, you know, phenomenal person, phenomenal talent. You know, she's going to take over the world. I'm going to work for her one day. I always tell her that. So these are, these are, you know, kind of investments in relationships, they're investments in shared purpose. And, you know, these are relationships that go on for a really, really long time. You know, my old assistant, when I worked at Merck, uh, was a woman named uh, Isami uh, Salcedo. She ended up, you know, going to graduate school at Boston University She's now vice president of project management at a biotech startup. And so seeing that kind of progress is so rewarding and seeing that kind of personal development is just so rewarding that it makes you want to do more of it. You know, I th- and, and I think the truth is, is that, you know, I'm, I wouldn't be lying if I didn't say it was like slightly selfish in the sense that 
you know, working with really talented people multiplies your, your abilities to accomplish things, gives you more reach into the universe to create impact. And so, you know, I think these alliances uh, and these relationships end up being very, very mutually beneficial along the way. What do you think are tangible ways for men and male allies to contribute to the professional development and uh, leadership capabilities of women? I think it's acknowledging some of the unique challenges that women face and some of the implicit messaging that they get you know, in the workplace that they're not good enough or that they don't have the re- relevant or requisite experiences to take on a leadership role. Probably one of my most, you know, kind of successful kind of mentoring or sponsorship, I should say sponsorship relationships, you know, with a woman um, was uh, Karen Sagano. Her now her name is now Karen Schulte after she uh, was married. You know, Karen, you know, was recruited to be my Southern California general manager at Kiermore. It became very clear that she was capable of way more. And when I needed a chief operating officer, I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, you are you're going to be my chief operating officer. She said, no way, you're going to be able to get someone way better than me. And it was actually interesting. I talked to my boss at the time, a really phenomenal executive named Pete Hightayan. And I said, I really want Karen to be my chief operating officer, but she's not stepping into it. And he said, you know, sometimes you have to show people that they can do it by putting them in the role. So force her to do this on an acting basis. And then a couple of months from now, she'll know that she can do it and that she's better than everyone else. And she'll she'll run away with it. And lo and behold, that's what happened. And Karen has um, did a phenomenal job for me as my chief operating officer uh, at um, at Caremore. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's one of these things where there's some specific dynamics when you're leading women, which is, you know, sometimes they've been told for their whole career that they're not good enough, either implicitly or explicitly. And our job as male sponsors of, of women is to acknowledge that sometimes those feelings exist. And that we have to kind of help people move beyond it. So that's been, you know, a key part of how I've led women through the course of my career. What is a key healthcare problem that you're looking to solve next at Scan Health? So we've got a number, but I would say we want to rebuild primary care for frail and vulnerable populations. We want to professionalize geriatrics as kind of a, being a top of the top of the food chain specialty in medicine, not a bottom of the food chain specialty in medicine. And so we're hard at work on a new startup that's focused on that. We're actually in the process of uh, trying to build out uh, a, one of the world's first risk-based homeless medical groups. You know, we think that homelessness has been framed incorrectly as a problem of housing supply, as opposed to seeing it as you know, fundamentally for many people, a healthcare issue. And if we can actually help address the underlying healthcare needs of many of the folks who are experiencing homelessness, there's an opportunity for us to actually maybe get at the root causes of why they're homeless and experiencing homelessness in the first place. So, you know, that's a big area of focus for us. You know, so we're not, we're, we're pretty ambitious. We're, we're trying to solve big, you know, big, big problems uh, through our chassis and hoping that we get there. How do you think Scan Health will, I guess, preside as a pioneer for these programs? Do you see yourself bringing these ideas and programs to other institutions? I think there's there's two ways change happens. One is through kind of organic spread, and then the other is through copycat inspiration. So, you know, we were the first to build a program in loneliness, and then within a year, there were five startups in the space. There were 
programs and competing health plans. People were copying, you know, our language we were using to describe it. And if earlier in my career, I would have, I would have been angry. I would have said, that's terrible. They're copying us and they're not giving us credit. At this stage, I'm kind of like, great. You know, we've created a multiplier effect again around impact by demonstrating the art of the possible and creating something that people want to copy and scale. And, you know, people who really care about the intellectual history of ideas will know, <clears throat> will know who started it first and where it came from. So, you know, I, we will both grow organically, but I expect that some of the innovations that we'll bring forward will yield copycats. You know, Caremore was the first real, you know, integrated health plan, risk-based, you know, care model in the country. Um, and, you know, people forget that Caremore existed and they talk about Oak Street and Landmark and City Block and, you know, the long list of companies that operate in the space. I think it's great. I mean, these are all children of Caremore and not not my care more, my predecessor's care more, Lee Lesson, who really kind of did a just, you know, fabulous job creating a culture that, you know, is oriented around doing the right stuff. So I I see the the scaling methodology to both be inspiration as well as organic spread. What does ideal healthcare look like for you if you could design a clinic or a care space from scratch? I think at the end of the day, it's an experience that is both virtual and um, and in person at home. Um, I think we have to make, you know, create easy buttons for healthcare. And what we've done is we've created a lot of friction around a lot of transactions that should be simple and simpler. And so I think we have to decrease the friction. We have to lower the cost barriers to care. We have to emphasize outpatient care over inpatient care. And in order to get there, you know, you have to disrupt a lot of forces along the way. But I think that there's a real opportunity there to do that. Uh, one last question uh, for you. What is a quote that you live by that you'd like to leave us with? I really think, you know, the leave a lesson quote, you can't change without change, uh, to me is is there. I mean, I, I think we all want a lot of change in our industry, but we want to do it without disrupting or creating abrasion. And I think we have to get realistic about what it takes to create real change. And if we're not realistic about it, then we have to acknowledge that we're not never going to see the kind of change we want to have. But you can't change without change. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jain, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donahue. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm slash thea-hc slash support.